Father, we pray that you would transform our minds so that we would have your view of the world and live accordingly. Amen. I wonder whether it's ever occurred to you that the Bible never seeks to argue that God exists. It simply asserts that God exists and focuses on the question, what's God like? What's his nature? What's his character? What are his actions? It dismisses, as we've just heard, those who say there is no God as fools. And what's more, it does the same about people who, whilst they may not say there is no God, or intellectually come to that conclusion, nonetheless live their lives on the basis that there isn't a God, or at least on the basis that if there is a God, he's not concerned with what goes on in this world. Now, you may feel that that's a bit harsh. After all, aren't there some very clever people who are atheists? Uh, Professor Brian Cox, for example, or the late uh, Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher. Aren't they clever? Yes, they are. But when the Bible says fool, it doesn't mean somebody who is uh, thick, somebody who's not intelligent. It's referring to somebody who is morally defective. What what the Bible is saying is that those who deny the existence of God are first of all ignoring the evidence and, and secondly are guilty of pride. And we need to look at those suggestions from the Bible and we'll do it one by one. Let's start with this business of the evidence Uh, Bertrand Russell was once famously asked what he would do if following his death he were confronted by God and God said to him, so why didn't you believe in me? And Russell replied that he would say, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Um, uh, It's true, you can look it up, it was an interview he gave many years ago. Uh, uh, Rather more pithily, He at one point said that belief in God is rather like believing in an invisible and intangible teapot orbiting the earth. Uh, So that was was pretty, pretty clear. Now the Bible couldn't more profoundly disagree. This is what it says in Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The denial of God, it is saying, is foolish. It is morally culpable. And let's think about that evidence for a moment. Um, Let's start with the evidence of the physical universe. Just think for a moment. Why does anything exist? Forget what things are like, but why is there something rather than nothing? How do you account for that? Um, More to the point, how do you account for the fact that what exists is in fact intelligible? We can describe it in mathematical equations. 
We can comprehend it. If you think about it, that's quite surprising. Even if there is something that exists, why should it be something that is, has form? Why shouldn't it be something that is formless? And why is it that when we do those equations, everything seems so finely tuned in the universe? The constants, the numbers we have to put into those equations are incredibly precise and unbelievably improbable. How do you account for that? Now, of course, uh, you and other people might say, well, it just is like that. There is no explanation. But with respect, that's a bit of a cop-out. It's rather like me uh, being asked, um, uh, why does this book exist? And me saying, well, it it just does. I I think you'd find that a rather unsatisfactory answer. So why should it be any different when we come to consider the universe? Or you might say, ah, yes, But what we're looking for is a set of mathematical equations which are sufficient to demonstrate that the current universe, or maybe a multiverse, is necessary. That's to say, mathematical mathematical equations which demonstrates that what exists is necessarily as it is. Well, fine, if we could find those equations, they might be worth taking into account, but we can't. And indeed, some philosophers have suggested it's actually impossible to find such equations, even theoretically. Of course, the third possibility is that all this is evidence for God. The third possibility is that this points to a creator who accounts for why there's something rather than nothing, who accounts for why it's comprehensible, because this creator is a personal being who comprehends it, and who accounts for why it's finely tuned, because he made it finely tuned. At very least, you should come to the conclusion that all of this is evidence for God, at least evidence that outclasses the evidence for invisible and intangible teapots orbiting the Earth. No, this is clear evidence that we need to take into account. But there's something more, something even bigger and more important. And it's this. Materialists like Cox and Russell load the evidential dice. Because what they say is the only evidence they will accept is material evidence. That is to say, things that can be studied by physicists. But why? On what possible uh, philosophical basis can you exclude any other evidence? That's simply assuming what you're trying to prove. We want to prove materialism, so we'll only admit evidence that is material. Well, thanks. It's not surprising the conclusion you reach. And it ignores a whole lot of other evidence. Let's just think about a few things. Think about our sense of morality. Um, It is wrong to torture babies. I bet you can't find anyone in the world who would disagree with that. It's wrong to torture babies. But where does that come from? Now, you might say, ah, it's all evolution. It's a survival mechanism. Um, And as a result... Our sense of ought is merely an illusion. It's a convenient illusion that helps us survive. Well, maybe. But isn't a rather more plausible explanation 
that uh, it's not an illusion that the evidence of our own sense of morality should point us in the direction that there is moral value in the universe. And where does that come from, if not from God? What about our consciousness? Another illusion? Or maybe, again, something that comes from evolution. But do note, if you believe it just comes from impersonal evolution and is nonetheless real, not an illusion, then you've got to come to the conclusion that something that was unconscious gave birth to something that was conscious. That strains my credulity just a little. But of course there's another explanation, which is that our consciousness is the result, comes from an eternal, foundational consciousness, God. And then... What about that sense that so many people have of uh, there being something missing? A sense that there's something transcendent, a sense of God. Oh yes, you might say, but that's just feelings, isn't it? Okay, but feelings are still evidence, they still need explaining, they're evidence of something. And why do you exclude the possibility that they may be evidence of precisely what people feel, the existence of God. Now look, I could go on. We could think about the concept of beauty. Where does that come from? Or is it just an illusion? Again, where does that come from? Philosophy, uh, um, uh, the arts, even maths itself. Incidentally, um, think about it for a moment. If you're a thoroughgoing materialist... In other words, you believe the only things in the universe are those things which a physicist can examine. What's maths? Can't examine 1 plus 1 equals 2, if you think about it. Think about that afterwards. Look, the key point here is this. There's masses of evidence out there for the existence of God. And the Bible says that the person who denies that evidence is guilty of morally culpable foolishness. That's point one. Point two, they are also guilty of pride. I can deal with this more briefly. First of all, to deny God effectively involves saying there is no one to whom I am accountable. And if you were to go back a page in the Bible just to Psalm 10 and verse 11, it says he, uh, this in context it's a, a wicked person, says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. I'm not accountable to anybody, ultimately. More than that, it involves saying, I don't need God. Go back a few more verses. Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. And if you were to go to Job, you'd find this in Job 21. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? This is a declaration of self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I'm not accountable to God. And again, the Bible says that that is culpable. By the way, most people wouldn't actually say that, would they? But that's the implication of the way they live their lives. And the Bible says this is foolishness. 
Um, Incidentally, um, the Bible also says that dependence on pagan gods is foolishness. In fact, that passage from Romans uh, chapter 1 that I quoted is in fact about people who follow pagan gods. Because you see, what the Bible says is the, the evidence out there, the evidence of creation, is for the creator God disclosed in the Bible, not anything else. Now, of course, I need to be careful because the Bible tells us that that kind of evidence only takes us so far. Once we get to that point, we need God's special revelation in order to disclose the true character of God and explain the world. But the evidence, it says, that we have is quite sufficient to point to him. So, it's foolishness to reject him. Question one. Question two, what's the consequence of that foolishness? Let's go back to Psalm 14. Still verse one. We will, by the way, go through the other verses a bit quicker, just to reassure you. Um, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The word corrupt there is the same word that was used uh, uh, just before the flood, Genesis chapter 6, when God looked at the world and saw the whole thing was corrupt. If you, if you have a computer program and it corrupts, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And in fact, it may well do bad things. And that's what God's saying here. What's being said is that we are corrupt so that what we actually do, at the end of verse 1, is vile. And we don't do what we were created to do. Same point is made in verse 3. Just look down there at that. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And there, what uh, David, the psalmist, is doing is generalizing. You see, he's not saying that there's this little bunch of fools over here, and then there's the comforting mass of humanity who are not fools over here. He's saying, no, the whole lot, the whole lot are fools. You may again feel that's a bit harsh, a bit of an overgeneralization, but it is what the Bible says time and again. I'm going to quote quite a big chunk of Romans chapter 3, because Paul uses Psalm 14 and uh, a number of other psalms, in fact a positive deluge of Old Testament quotations, to make that very point. Romans 3, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all, sorry, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, again, you may say, well, gosh, that's very harsh. But it's the viewpoint of God. Did you notice in verse 2 here... Um, It says that God, the Lord, looks down from heaven on all mankind. The Bible often says things like that. It envisages God just above the heavens, looking down on all of us. 
Uh, in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, it says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. And God looks down on that and says, what I see is corruption. What I see is vile behavior. What I see is people not doing what they should be doing. To be clear, what the Bible is not saying that each and every act of every person is bad in the sense that it is in and of itself evil. But what it is saying is that all people are going in the wrong direction. It's saying that the entire orientation of their lives is wrong. Why? Because they've rejected God. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, verse 2, to see if there is anyone who understands, any who seek God. And the conclusion is, no, there isn't anyone who seeks God. And you see, uh, King David, writing this psalm, is just astonished by that. Down at verse 4. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. Uh, Do you see the point? Uh, This denial of God is foolish, not least because it's based on a critical miscalculation. That's what it says in verse 5. The miscalculation is that God's not going to do anything. But he is. He's going to judge. By the way, verse 5 is not a statement of what's going on in the present. It's not saying, in the here and now, people are overwhelmed with dread. What it's saying is, I foresee them being overwhelmed by dread. It's, 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 a, it's a vision of the future. But the vision is that God will act in judgment. Now, if the charge is that everybody has gone astray, everybody has turned from God, no one is doing right, and judgment will follow, then inevitably the question arises, well, hang on a moment, uh, is there any way out of this. And there's a hint here in this psalm that there is, because if you look down at uh, verse 5, you'll see there's these characters called the righteous. And as we've been going on, you may have been thinking, well, David's saying all this about big generalizations about everybody being in this position. Does he include himself in that? Well, no, clearly he doesn't. He does accept that there's this body called the righteous. How do we square that? And in particular, how do we move from being in the company of the foolish to being in the company of the righteous? The natural way that we express the question of ourselves is, what do we have to do to make sure we make that transition? Last Wednesday, I watched a programme on... um, BBC One, I think it was, called Sacred Wonders. I don't know whether any of you watched it. Uh, apparently not. Uh, well, um, it was uh, about five people 
and what they did by way of religious commitment. There was a guy who does, uh, cleans up the Angkor Wat, uh, removing the jungle growth from it every year. There was a Buddhist monk or trainee monk in China. There was a Muslim medic in Jerusalem. There was a Christian in Mallorca who carried uh, an image with other people, an image of the Virgin on his shoulder through the town. And there was a Hindu doctor in London uh, preparing a meal for the gods at the temple in East uh, West uh, London. It was an absolutely fascinating program. But it was deeply um, troubling and really very, very sad. And the reason is that with the possible exception of the first person, all of those people were trying to work their way to salvation in one way or another. But one of the people, I think it was the Hindu towards the end of the program, said that uh, he believed that he proved himself worthy to the gods. And and perhaps even sadder was the Christian in, in Mallorca, because he said that the annual carrying of this enormous uh, sort of float type thing with the virgin on it was almost the raison d'etre of his life. I forget his precise words. And he explained how when you've got it on your shoulder, you have to carry it for six hours and it weighs tons. And you could see from the pictures, they were in agony carrying this thing. And he said it was a penance that that he had to do. But The thing is, that's tragically misguided. If we we look at what we've seen here, if we look at what Paul says in Romans, the fact is we can never prove ourselves worthy of God. No amount of penance on our part can atone for for, for what's been done. The level of corruption is just too deep for that. Uh, The passage in Romans that I quoted ends with this. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we we become conscious of sin. Tragically, that thing that that man in Mallorca said was the sort of centre of his life the thing that he devoted all his zeal to, and believe me, he knocked the spots off you and me in terms of zealous commitment, but it's futile. That's the tragedy of the whole thing. But we, I hope most of us here, shouldn't stop there. Because, you see, it's not only futile, it's unnecessary. We, we can't prove ourselves worthy of God. We can't do things that constitute adequate penance before God. But we don't need to. Go to the end of the psalm, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad where it says that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
Zion was, of course, the the hill in Jerusalem on which the temple was going to be built shortly after David's reign. It was the place where, symbolically, God dwelt. And what David is saying here is, oh, that God would act in salvation. Now, he was probably specifically thinking about acting to vindicate the righteous he had referred to a couple of verses earlier. But his words are of more general application. You see, if uh, anything is going to be done to deal with the consequences of that universal foolishness that David is talking about here, then God has to act. There is no other option. And the good news is that God has acted. In the Old Testament, God said time and again that people could and should repent and turn to him. And that if they did that, he would forgive their sins and would count them righteous before him. He would put them in the company of the righteous, referred to here, moving them from being fools to being righteous. That means being in right standing before him, being accepted as in a right position, right relationship with him. But of course in the Old Testament, we're not told in detail what's going to happen. Although, by the way, in the autumn we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah and it gives us some pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But nothing really specific. But of course, we know about Jesus. We know that Jesus came to earth and died and thereby, to use the expression in the New Testament, enabled us to be reconciled to God enables us to be deemed righteous before God. You see, those of us here may never have denied the existence of God in an intellectual or express sense. We may not have been fools in that sense, but but the accusation here is we have all been fools in this sense, that we've lived our lives in a way that effectively denies him. We have in practice denied his existence, or at least in practice denied that he has any involvement in the world. And the really good news is that God has acted. Salvation has come out of Zion, to use the expression here. And the result is that if we do have faith in Jesus then we can escape the consequences of our own foolishness. That's the good news, which is, as it were, the fulfilment of this psalm. Amen.